0: is Crimes of the Centuries. Charles Roberts hadn't seen his father in months. On the surface, that wouldn't have been too odd, considering that both men were grown and both regularly left their hometown of Gilmanton, New Hampshire, for months-long stints as sailors for the U.S. Merchant Marines. That's why, when his sister Barbara told him in April 1947 that she hadn't seen their dad since October of the previous year, he was curious, but not overly concerned. After all, Sylvester had never been much of a family man, so it's not like he went out of his way to spend a lot of time at the Gilmanton farm where he and his late wife had lived with five children. But he tended to swing by every few months, at least, particularly around the holidays. It was unusual for him to completely blank out on Christmas, but not impossible. And then summer came, and along with it, an ominous telegram sent to Uncle Ernest, Sylvester's brother. It was from the Merchant Marines, demanding to know why Sylvester hadn't reported for duty all year. Barbara still shrugged. Are you sure you haven't heard from him? Charles pressed his sister. Barbara insisted she hadn't. Her little brother, William, the only other child still young enough to live at home, backed her up. Finally, in September, Charles pressed yet again, and the truth finally came out. And it was a truth so shocking that it not only made headlines around the world, but it inspired one of the best-selling books of all time, which in turn transformed the entertainment industry forever. When Sylvester Roberts disappeared in 1946, no one in Gilminton could have imagined that his case would ultimately be inextricably tied to the life of a 20 something complete stranger raised some 40 miles south. Yet, 10 years after Roberts' name graced headlines nationwide, that's exactly what happened. Grace Metallius had been born and raised in the mill town of Manchester. In between her hometown and Gilmanton was Concord, New Hampshire's capital city. She was a housewife and mother to three children who stood out in quaint New England in part because she dared defy the era's feminine conventions, according to Robert Parole, a Franco-American scholar, in a 2019 presentation to the Guilford Public Library. How she did that was... By wearing
1: plaid flannel shirts, jeans, and sneakers, not to mention... Uh, smoking, swearing, and drinking—it
0: <laughs> sounds pretty low-key as far as defying conventions goes. But it was symbolic of a bigger rebellion growing inside of Metalius, one connected to her dream of becoming a writer. But before we talk about that development, let's back up and talk about the case that inspired Metalius's most famous and controversial book, the murder of Sylvester Roberts. The Roberts family technically lived just outside of Gilminton, on a small farm in the weirdly named community of Gilminton Ironworks. Patriarch Sylvester wasn't very interested in farming, but he'd immigrated from Birmingham, England, and, well, it seemed the thing to do. After all, older brother Ernest was a successful chicken farmer on nearby land. And anyway, it was easy to find dirt-cheap land in New Hampshire at the time. So that's what he did, and he and wife Marjorie settled there in 1927. By then, they'd had four of their five children. The youngest, Billy, would be born on the farm in 1931. It wasn't an easy life, but the Roberts family aimed to make do by raising sheep, meant to supply wool to small New England mills. As soon as the kids were old enough to walk, they had chores around the farm. Unfortunately, though, the land just didn't grow much. Because the farm was sort of tucked away in some woods, a lot of the land didn't get enough sun. Pretty much, the family did just well enough to get by. Their cows produced milk for the family, but none extra to sell. Their sheep brought in some money, but nothing like the windfall Sylvester had envisioned when he moved there. Life got immeasurably harder for the family in 1938 when Mother Marjorie fell ill. Though she had two daughters, and though the oldest was a teenager also named Marjorie, Mother Marjorie called 11-year-old Barbara to her deathbed to relay some important instructions. Barbara, she said, was now in charge of her little brother Billy, who at the time was just five years old. Barbara's mother died soon after that talk. She was only 40 years old. Barbara took her brother raising responsibility very seriously. And she did a lot more than that to boot. She basically became the so-called woman of the house, cooking dinner and keeping the place clean. In 1942, with the start of World War II, the three men of the family, dad Sylvester and sons Charles and Robert, all registered for the draft and joined the Merchant Marines. The name is confusing because you would assume the organization was affiliated with the military Marines, but no. The Merchant Marines were civilians in charge with transporting cargo. From an old newsreel.
1: Every day in every port, these unsung heroes of the Merchant Marine are signing up for service. For planes must be delivered overseas. Guns must be transported to new fronts. Torpedo boats must be sped to combat areas. And trucks, trucks, trucks.
0: It was a way to join the fight without having to do any actual fighting.
1: America's victory fleet, delivering the goods that will win the war.
0: The men would be away for months at a time. Billy, of course, was too young to join. He turned 11 in 1942. By then Marjorie, the oldest daughter, was 18 and getting married, while Barbara was turning 16. Barbara didn't mind tending house alone. In fact, life was just all around better When her father was away, because though Barbara never told anyone, she had a secret. Sylvester was not a kind man. He routinely got drunk and beat his children, and worse. When he did come home, he didn't give Barbara and Billy much notice. What he would do was send a telegram saying, hey, I'll be there in a few days. Barbara was expected to pick him up at the train station when he arrived. Otherwise, he'd have to trek the nearly 30 miles from the station to his farm, and Sylvester told Barbara flatly that if that ever happened, he'd straight up kill her. This is how one year passed for the Roberts family, and then another, and another.
1: Then on the fifth day of June 1944, just as you see them here, a fleet of more than 4,000 ships put out from England. This was D-Day.
0: The war dragged on, as did life on the Roberts farm. Barbara raised Billy, occasionally endured her father's return trips home, and celebrated when he left. Before Barbara knew it, four years had passed. Now, Barbara didn't have much for herself and Billy. Her father and brothers sent bits of their paychecks home, but that didn't add up to much. So Barbara got a job in a local general store and felt lucky that she at least had access to the family car, even though it wasn't a great one. In December of 1946, the thing had crapped out on Barbara, so she had taken it to a local garage to get fixed. It just so happened that it was still in the shop when she got an unexpected telegram announcing that her father was coming home. Barbara began to panic. This is from the book, The Peyton
2: Place Murder by Renee Mallet. There was no chance the telegram could be anything other than unwelcome news from Sylvester. Sylvester never wrote normal letters,
0: rarely made any phone calls, and was the only person to ever telegram the home.
2: Barbara was in a panic knowing that Sylvester, abusive even in the best of times, would be coming home enraged. Even though the 19-year-old had a couple of days
0: to prepare for her father's arrival, she felt so paralyzed by fear that those days were a blur. She knew her dad would be furious that the car had broken down, and even though that wasn't Barbara's fault, she knew she'd be the one to pay for it. And she didn't want to, not this time. So instead of coming up with a game plan to pick her father up from the station, she floated through the subsequent days in something of a stupor, just going through the motions of her routine as though on autopilot. She went to work. She was polite to her customers. She took care of her brother. Later, when people would look back on those days and ponder her behavior during them, they wouldn't flag much that seemed amiss. Maybe she was a little quieter than usual, but not by much. Maybe she seemed a hair preoccupied, but Christmas was fast approaching. Who didn't seem preoccupied around the holidays?
1: I sure hope you got all your Christmas shopping done. It's pretty hectic rushing off at the last minute to take care of Uncle Charlie or Aunt Bertha or Cousin Sam.
0: There was only one person outside of the Roberts family who should have had an inkling, and that was the police chief and also the school janitor. Strangely, people in small towns sometimes wear many hats. Anyway, back in October, so about two months earlier, Barbara had confided in Frank Doust that her home life was unbearable. He had stopped by the general store, called Knuckles, to pick up a loaf of bread on his way home from work, and found Barbara alone, crying. When he asked what was wrong, she tried to pass it off as stomach pains, but Doust had sensed there was more to it than that, so he pressed. Bit by bit, she began to share with him that every time her father came home from the Merchant Marines, he was violent. She worried about what Sylvester would do to her, and even more so to her younger brother. Barbara told Doust, quote, You have no idea the kind of life I lead when my father is home, end quote. Doust, while polite, had basically shrugged it off. Kids, you know, they're always being so melodramatic. Still, he'd been kind enough to Barbara that when the night finally came for her to pick up her father from the train station, she sought the chief's help. It happened December 23rd, Christmas Eve Eve. Barbara's telephone rang before dinner time. Normally, what would have transpired would have gone like this. Sylvester called and demanded she get him. Barbara would agree and pick him up. And then she and little brother Billy would endure days of unpleasantness at best and abuse at worst, before Sylvester hit the seas again. This time, Barbara didn't answer the phone at all. There was no one else who would have been calling. So when that phone rang, she knew what it was about. And she left the house to look for police chief Frank Doust. Barbara had told him there was violence, but she hadn't told him everything. He'd been kind and concerned enough that she felt certain he would help her if he knew just how bad things really were. So she wandered the snow-covered streets looking for him, asking everyone she ran into whether they had seen him. She couldn't have known it at the time, but Doust wasn't even in town that night. He had left for the holiday. He didn't even know she'd been looking for him until well after what happened that night, which went something like this. About an hour after Sylvester called and got no answer, he arrived at home. By then Barbara was back and actually a bit startled at his quick arrival. Remember the Roberts family lived some 26 miles from the station which would have taken probably nine or ten hours to walk. Clearly Sylvester had gotten lucky and hitched a ride with someone but there was no sign that turn of luck had done anything to soothe his temper at not being picked up by his daughter. Instead he burst through the door in a rage. There's a lot we don't know about that night. For example, we don't know if Billy was home and waiting for his father, too, or if he showed up during the altercation, or if he was gone all night, like Barbara told police. What we do know is that the Roberts family kept both a pistol and a rifle handy in the house, and at some point, both of those guns were fired. Sylvester was killed, and either Barbara or Barbara and Billy both dragged his corpse to the sheep pen out back and shoved him beneath some loose floorboards. Then she celebrated Christmas like nothing had happened.
1: A Merry Christmas, everybody. To each and every one of you who join us for these programs, this is NBC, the national broadcasting company.
0: It would be nine long months before anyone found the remains of Sylvester Roberts. Once Barbara Roberts confessed to her brothers, Charles and Robert, yes, that second brother's name really was Robert Roberts, she was ready to come clean to everyone. By then, her life had nearly unraveled. She couldn't stay in the house where she'd fatally shot her father, so she moved in with her boyfriend, David's family. From Renee Mallet's book,
2: Barbara wrote to her brothers, telling them that she and a former Gilminton boy, David, had married quietly in a small ceremony. This was later found to be a lie. Townsfolk knew the two weren't married, but were surprisingly forgiving, considering
0: this was the 1940s.
2: With her boyfriend's parents there to act as chaperones, it was thought the young couple was just trying to save up money so they could be properly betrothed and married. Only in hindsight would it look more like Barbara had been running away from something, instead of running towards a new future when she left the farm. It should have been a bright and happy time for the young woman, but a cloud seemed to follow Barbara everywhere she went. What she had done weighed on her
0: every single day. She lost weight, she looked tired all the time, she seemed forgetful, but no one knew her secret until later. And so none of these red flags were, well, flagged. Not until Charles and Robert walked Barbara into the police station on September 5th, 1947, and announced she had something to say. She didn't sugarcoat it. I killed my father, she told an officer, who was too green to know what to do with that information. He got a supervisor, who was just as perplexed. Finally, Barbara was told to write down what happened. She wrote, quote, My name is Barbara Roberts. I live with my boyfriend's mother at Ashland, I understand that I do not have to talk and that anything I say may be used against me. This statement is made voluntarily without any promise having been made. I shot my father, Sylvester Roberts, last December at her home in Gilmanton Iron Works. This happened December 23rd, 1946, at 6 p.m. I shot him with a gun that was at the house. It was his gun. I don't know what caliber it was. After I shot him, I dragged him into the barn myself and put him into the cellar under the sheep pen. There was nobody there when all this happened. I never told anybody about this until I told my brother today, end quote. No matter how police looked at Barbara, however, they simply couldn't see a killer. Her story didn't quite make sense. It wasn't just that she was a young, pretty woman, though that was part of it. Barbara had a trim figure, dark hair, dark eyes, and ivory skin. She wore outfits that seemed out of place for someone of her class. These were smart-fitted numbers that you would usually see on women bustling about big city streets, not on poor farm girls. Barbara also seemed just too calm about it all. She didn't sob as she told her tale or seem ashamed or beg forgiveness. She was composed and confident. This is what happened. This is how I did it. I did it alone. Let's wrap this up already. Skeptical officers pressed her. Are you sure your little brother Billy isn't the real killer? You're just covering for him to protect him, right? No, Barbara replied. I did it. He didn't even know about it. Yeah, but he must have helped you move the body at least, the cops said. Barbara insisted no. I'm stronger than I look. I dragged that body myself. And she maybe could have. The job she held at the Knuckles General Store required significant strength, and customers were always commenting on her ability to lift and haul and load without any help. Finally,
2: there was the awful discovery. The call came in around 10 o'clock. Sylvester Roberts had finally been found. Beneath the loose floorboards of the sheet pen, just as Barbara had described, The white bones of her father gleamed beneath the flames of the torch. The bones were far too decomposed
0: to be of much evidentiary value, at least in terms of verifying cause of death. But they were there, just as Barbara had said, and no one doubted they belonged to 51-year-old Sylvester. So the police asked the obvious, but why? Why would you kill your own father? Barbara explained, it wasn't just about being beaten. Her father had repeatedly raped her, she said. It had started after her mother's death, and she'd endured it year after year, sometimes with little Billy, the boy who was more a son to her than a brother, in the house. Barbara's only sister, Marjorie, then stepped forward. He abused me too, she said. The story became fodder for the local papers,
2: with Barbara described as a pretty New Hampshire girl the attractive Gilminton Ironworks girl, a ladylike girl, pretty and popular and comely.
0: But Barbara's tale was more than just a lurid train wreck of a story. Legendary journalist Ben Bradley, that's the guy who would later be Woodward and Bernstein's editor on the Watergate series, was then basically a cub reporter with an activist bent. His newspaper, the New Hampshire Sunday News, took on crimes against women in a way that other publications didn't dare. The Roberts case was
2: one of the biggest in the state. And, Renee Mallett wrote, Bradley wasn't content with... Simply printing an alluring photo of the young murderess with her confession, as many other papers did. Ben Bradley took a fearless deep dive into the dysfunctional dynamics of the Roberts family. It mattered. It made a difference.
0: No doubt it helped, too, that police chief Frank Dow stepped forward straight away to tell what he knew about the conditions in the Roberts home. Barbara's words to him the previous October, that he had no idea how bad things were for her when her father was home, haunted him. He'd believed her and yet minimized what she was saying at the same time. It just hadn't occurred to him that she could have possibly meant something so dark, so unthinkable. While Charles and Robert said they'd never known about the sexual assault, they knew their father had a temper and was sometimes violent. It was one of the reasons they were happy to move out as soon as they were old enough. Both brothers stood by Barbara as the criminal case unfolded. After a grand jury weighed the case, though, it wasn't just Barbara facing prison time. The grand jury also indicted Billy. The belief was that he must have aided and abetted in legalese, or at least helped conceal the crime after the fact. Barbara insisted again and again that she had worked alone, but there was one element of her story that gave people doubts. She told authorities that she had fired a gun once, killing her father straight away, but she couldn't say for sure which gun it had been. There's obviously a pretty big difference between firing a pistol and a rifle, so this seemed odd. Plus, once the crime scene was properly examined, police found slugs from both guns embedded in the dining room wall. Their deduction was that Barbara and Billy had each fired one of the weapons, but that Barbara didn't know which of the two fatally shot their father. As such, she claimed ignorance on which weapon she had shot in case she guessed wrong about what kind of bullet they'd find in her dad. In the end, though, it didn't matter. Just as the newspapers nationwide readied for the case to go to trial, Barbara and Billy surprised everyone by entering guilty pleas to first-degree manslaughter. Billy, still a minor, was sentenced to four years of probation and sent to a youth home. Barbara was sentenced to five years in the state prison. Ultimately, her tale reached New Hampshire Governor Charles M. Dale, who pardoned her of the crime. She served only a year in prison. But her story wasn't over. In fact, thanks to author Grace Metellius, in a decade's time, it would become a major plot point in one of the era's most popular books, from an AMC documentary.
1: For people growing up in the 50s, they still regard it fondly as the book that destroyed their innocence. And we are so grateful because it it taught us about life, it taught us about sex. The book would sell 10 million
0: copies within a year. It was called Peyton Place. For those of us who didn't grow up in the 50s, the name Peyton Place might still ring a bell, but maybe not because of the book. Maybe it's because of the movie.
1: Allison, come back here immediately. If you keep this up someday, I will do what you keep accusing me of. I wouldn't doubt it. You're just like your father about sex. and that way, you're just like him. But don't you say things about my father. He was a wonderful man.
0: Or maybe it's because of the primetime soap opera. Do
2: you happen to notice that thing in the square down there, that, that wooden thing with the holes for the arms and the head? That's how they used to punish people.
1: Well, that's 200 years. Ago. Times change. That's what you think now, Dr. Rossi change your mind if you stay here in Peyton
0: Place. Or you might know the phrase Peyton Place from the gajillion references there have been over the years in various bits of pop culture, like this song by D. Tony Lee. The book might still have been written if author Grace Metellius had never learned of Sylvester Roberts' murder, but who knows if it would have been the crazy smash success that it was. That's because Metellius pulled one of the major plot points straight from the headlines. In the book, a young girl named Selena Cross is raped by her stepfather, and when he returns home after an extended absence and enters the house and in an abusive rage, she kills him. Metalius actually wrote the storyline to be even more like Barbara Roberts' real life tale, and that Selena was raped by her biological father. But the one publisher willing to distribute the salacious book insisted that it be changed to Stepfather. Apparently, real life was a bit too tawdry for the masses. Even with that change, the book was still wildly controversial in part because, as this AMC documentary explains, this was a point in history in which America was caught in the artistic stranglehold
1: of the conservative 1950s.
0: The controversy was further fueled by the fact that this taboo-filled novel was written by a 32-year-old mother of three, as is pointed out in this 1958 TV interview with Metallius.
1: People are surprised, Grace, that a book so full of sex and violence Could have been written by you, a housewife and mother of three children. For heaven's sake, sex and violence is around all the time. This shouldn't be any surprise to anyone. But it was a
0: surprise, an unpleasant one, according to most critics who dismissed it as borderline pornography. The book was banned in several states. Even in states that hadn't blacklisted the book, you might have trouble finding it because plenty of bookstores flat out refused to sell it. Instead of slowing sales, though, all of this outrage fueled the book's popularity, leading it to become one of the best selling novels of all time. Author Emily Toth There were people
1: who sewed pockets inside their jackets so they could keep their copy of Peyton Place there. Soon, Peyton Place became a
0: recognizable phrase to mean a community that seemed wholesome and quaint on the surface, but in reality was teeming with dirty little secrets. Robert Perot again.
1: This isn't surprising, because the bestseller that contributed that evocative expression to our vocabulary broke all sales records for fiction up to that time, including Gone with the Wind and God's Little Acre.
0: The Roberts family wasn't thrilled. Billy Roberts, who'd been convicted alongside his sister Barbara for the manslaughter of their father, publicly denounced Metallius. Metallius's adopted hometown of Gilmonton, New Hampshire, wasn't pleased either. Some of her neighbors claimed to recognize themselves in her characters, even though Metallius had fictionalized the town in her book, and even went so far as to say in interviews that really, Peyton Place could be any small town in any U.S. state.
1: But I've had a great number of letters from all 48 states in the United States, which say, in essence, I live in Peyton Place. So this couldn't possibly be construed to to mean a small town in New Hampshire. I've always thought that was very unfair. Who were the people who said this? I've always thought that it was the people with the uh, guilty consciences.
0: Metallius's story should be an inspirational one about a woman with no formal education writing an unbelievably popular debut novel and lifting her family out of near poverty, but it isn't. She refused to leave Gilmington, but the town's rejection of her was rough. She'd already been a drinker, but after getting filthy rich from her
1: book, She lost herself in the bottle. Grace Metallius' life really fit the arc of a a bad tabloid story. She really could not cope with success and the criticism of herself, not only for her writing, but for her looks or for everything about her. She became a very, very heavy drinker. Peyton Place came out when she was 32. Uh, By the time she was 39 and a half, she had drunk herself to death.
0: She had written a few more books by then, including a sequel called Return to Peyton Place. Though that book sold 4 million copies and was also turned into a movie, she just never found happiness. Toward the end of her life, she once said, If I had to do it over again, it would be easier to be poor. In that 1958 TV interview, she was certain that her book was a flash
1: in the pan. Do you think that Peyton Place will be remembered? I doubt it very much. You don't very think much. you don't think that twenty five years from now, the name of oh, no will no, mean anything, not at
0: all. That's obviously not true. Not only was the book a monumental success, but the films and TV shows spawned from Ittaliius's book were groundbreaking, too. If you remember season one's episode about Fatty Arbuckle, you'll recall that the still burgeoning film industry, got panicked in the 1920s that it was going to lead millions down a path of immorality. And so, by 1930, Hollywood had in place the Motion Picture Production Code, also known as the Hayes Code, named after William H. Hayes, who was president of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America at the time. The Hays Code was a set of self-imposed rules sparked by a few Hollywood scandals, one of the highest profile being the alleged rape and murder of actress Virginia Rappé, for which Art Buckle was charged, but ultimately acquitted. The code frowned upon a lot of things, including references to sexual behavior, depiction or description of adultery, portrayals of interracial relationships and homosexuality. The list was lengthy. Because of this, Paint Place, at first, was considered unfilmable.
1: It was a story so shocking, they said it could never be filmed.
0: And yet, it was filmed, with big movie stars attached, just one year after the book hit stores. It was a case of perfect timing, as the crumbling studio system and a heavy influx of provocative foreign films were forcing the conservative Hayes office to rethink its policies in fear of losing their power. The movie version was, of course, watered down a bit in some areas, but it still featured storylines that were unheard of at the time. Author Gerald Gardner.
1: There were two abortions, uh, one murder, uh, successive uh, rapes of a 14-year-old schoolgirl by her stepfather. This was
0: a huge deviation in an industry that not long before had insisted Lucille Ball be described as expecting because the word pregnant was vulgar. What's interesting to me, though, is that while Peyton Place is still remembered some 65 years after publication, the real-life crime at the center of its small-town story is largely forgotten. Most of the details I learned about the 75-year-old murder were from contemporary newspapers, so stories published long before the fictionalized version was released and also the 2021 indie book The Paint and Place Murder by Renee Mallet. Side note, the book was hilariously listed on Amazon as the number 1 seller in the cinematography category, which is mostly populated by how to GoPro books. In short, I could find plenty of documentaries about Grace Metellus and Paint and Place, but none about Barbara and Sylvester Roberts. And to be clear, that's not because there's dispute over whether the Roberts case served as inspiration. The first mention of the connection I found in newspaper archives came in July 1976 in a Boston Globe column called Ask the Globe. I did a column like this once for the Cincinnati Enquirer. Basically, readers write in with a question. Any question, nothing's out of bounds or dismissed as dumb. And the newspaper would find and publish the answer. Well, in this 1976 column, someone ID'd only as J.K. from the town of Malden asked, what is the name of the town that the book Peyton Place was modeled after? The Globe replied, Peyton Place was modeled after Gilmanton, New Hampshire, the hometown of author Grace Metalius. The book was based on the murder of Sylvester Roberts by his daughter in 1946. Metallius never shied away from the connection either. She mentioned it to reporters, usually in a way that seemed to defend her writing. I mean, after all, it's kind of ironic that her book was blasted as salacious when in reality it depicted a tamer version of the Roberts crime. How can you accuse a writer of being too sensational when they're softening
2: real life? But as Mallet writes, In 1956, even as reporters swarmed the small town of Gilmanton, trying to show it was the real-life Peyton Place, few showed any real interest in the murder of Sylvester Roberts. Today, I feel confident that we would have conservatively 2,000
0: headlines about the real murder behind this scandalous bestseller. But the mere existence of the book was enough to rattle the country in the 1950s, and it's jumped to the silver screen enough to upend Hollywood people didn't want to stomach the additional weight of acknowledging that the book was based on real life, especially when that would have undermined the narrative that Metellius was a backstabbing Pandora in blue jeans. So determined were her Gilmanton neighbors to distance themselves from Paint and Place and from the Real Life Roberts case, that after Metellius died, they balked when her family buried her in
1: town. Emily Toth. There were at least a dozen people who called, complained, carried on about having her buried in town there. And her, her daughter, Marcia still talks about that with great grief and says, um, she was dead, who could she hurt? I'm only sorry that after her, her death they had to fight still to give her the respect that she always wanted.
0: As for Barbara Roberts, she was released from prison with a full pardon in December of 1948 Three months later, she married her boyfriend, David Golden. The two stayed married for nearly 30 years until David's death in 1978. Barbara Golden, née Roberts, lived until the ripe old age of 89, dying in obscurity in 2016. There's one more postscript to this story. The Roberts case wasn't the only real-life murder with paint-and-place ties, but that story is for next week. To research the story, I read all the contemporary news coverage and genealogical research I could find, plus, gleaned info from Renee Mellet's book, the full title of which is The Peyton Place Murder The True Crime Story Behind the Novel That Shocked the Nation. Grace Metellius' info was easier to find, though the AMC episode of Backstory About Peyton Place was especially helpful. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast
1: Facebook page.